Welcome to Access Utah. Thanks for thanks for being with us. Um, you uh, recall that uh, yesterday um, I uh, was uh, talking with the co-directors of the USU Digital Folklore uh, Project, uh, Jeannie Thomas and Lynn McNeil. We were viewing the top digital trends of 2020. We even got into some digital trends so far this year in 2021. And I uh, posed a question that I could imagine some listeners may have had, which is with all the uh, disturbing news that's going on, the breaking news at a breakneck uh, pace, why were we uh, talking about uh, digital trends and folklore? And here's what Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona emailed. He says, am I wondering why Access Utah is devoting an hour to folklore uh, with all the unpleasant political news that's happening? Oh, contraire, Tom. I could not be more delighted to take a break and spend the hour listening to a program about folklore. So thanks for that, Steve. Appreciate that. Um, and uh, the following episode of Access Utah uh, was first broadcast in October of last year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Our guest today is Selena Gallo-Cruz, Associate Professor of Sociology at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. We're going to talk about women's suffrage movement, women's resistance in civil war, civics education, and the ongoing movement for voting rights. Professor Gallo-Cruz has a book coming out shortly entitled Invisibility and Resistance, comparatively examining how three women's peace movements rose in Argentina, the former Yugoslavia, and Liberia in the face of military repression and genocide. She's also active in a number of local civil society efforts in her hometown of Worcester, Massachusetts, currently directs a community organizer-led civics education program for public schools. And uh, Professor Gallo Cruz, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. We appreciate you being on, um, and uh, we would have had you in Utah earlier in the year, except... uh, you know, pandemic hit. So uh, this is a this is a virtual event. Uh, we're happy to to have you on. Uh, I always start these days <laughs> with the pandemic. How are things going, in Massachusetts? Um, well, I think that um, we're still in unsettled times. <laughs> if I have to sum it up, I'm uh, here in Worcester. We've seen numbers start to climb a bit, um, but I. I'm pleased that there are free testing sites offered throughout the city, and uh, we have mask laws and um, limits on gathering and so forth. Um, so there's certainly abundance of caution being practiced here and um, a good deal of diligence still in trying to keep the numbers low and keep everyone safe. Um, but I think the pandemic has unearthed uh, all kinds of inequalities uh, that were lying beneath the surface that maybe we weren't focusing on in the ways that we should have. Um, We're seeing that uh, numbers of homelessness rising, concerns about evictions and um, job loss, food access, all of these things are coming out. So there are definitely layers to it that go beyond public health. Mm. And uh, how are things at College of the Holy Cross? I know you know a lot different institutions of higher learning are handling this all different ways. Yes, and I don't know if you know that uh, Holy Cross is the alma mater of Dr. Fauci. So, I, I didn't uh, know that. The students have been mm. yes. Yeah, yeah, so the students have been lucky to um, uh, get some 
direct contact, uh, well, uh, via Zoom with Dr. Fauci. He'll be speaking to them shortly. He's had some health difficulties himself, but um, certainly we've taken on an abundance of caution in how we are operating uh, in the fall semester, and um, we're beginning to talk about spring, but so much remains to be seen. Um, The students are all online, except for a few international students and some athletes in training. Um, and uh, universal mask policy on campus and frequent testing for those that are there. We're taking every precaution we can. Interesting, Dr. Fauci's alma mater. Um, yeah, it's just nice to have students access to him a bit. Uh, yeah, I kind of wonder, just parenthetically before we jump into the main topic, um, students contemplating going into public health. I don't know whether they're energized by this or, or off-put with, you know, uh, pushback Dr. Fauci's gotten and other public health officials have received threats, and it's a very interesting time. Certainly, certainly. And that's a fantastic question. We should talk more about faculty, about checking in with our students, because we are a big pre-med school. So um, I appreciate you raising that point. Oh, pre-med. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to jump into the topic for today, and by, you know, it's this is the, the Voting Rights Symposium, and um, Dr. Diao Cruz is the next speaker. Uh, by the way, um, she will be uh, in conversation this afternoon with uh, Dr. Angela Diaz uh, from USU in the History Department, and that's a web event, so I guess glass half full, um, if you were in person here at USU campus, be only people who could travel, now with a web event, uh, People can join from anywhere, so that's a that's a nice thing. Um, let me ask. Yes, I'm, go I'm ahead. happy about that aspect of it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I. And again, uh, to register um, for the, the the only thing you have to do is register. There's no cost, uh, but you just want to register for. The, I think it's a Zoom event. Um, by just uh, just the easiest ways to Google USU Voting Rights Symposium and register. That will take you to the list of speakers. Find today's speaker and just click on the register button. That's the only only thing you have to do, and then you'll then you'll be able to join. That's five o'clock this afternoon. Of course, you can join this conversation as well by email to upraccess at gmail dot com. Upraccess at gmail dot com. Uh, so you've done some interesting work, uh, Professor Guy Cruz, um, talking about. And in fact, uh, this is uh, the title of a book chapter that you sent me. I uh, appreciate that. Uh, American Mothers of Nonviolence, Action and Politics, the Politics of Erasure, the Women's Nonviolent Activism. In this, um, you point out, and I think it's, uh, we'd say it's very true, the history of nonviolence as it's currently written generally starts with Gandhi. And, and, uh, and writers will tip their cap uh, to, to Emerson and, uh, and uh, I guess, to Tolstoy. Uh, but it generally starts with, with Gandhi. I want you to talk about that. And Gandhi learned, however, from the, from the women's movement. He did, and um, that's lesser known, but um, he gained some good philosophical grounding from Tolstoy and Thoreau. There was a non-resistance movement, a sort of early Christian precursor to nonviolence um, here in New England, actually, um, that, that Tolstoy was exposed to. And it, it promoted a real systemic thinking that if we want to resist um, violent modes of conflict resolution, then, then we have to refuse to engage in it. Um, and, uh, you know, a similar 
passive resistance ideas um, he drew on uh, from Tolstoy. But he was reading about the suffragists, especially in the UK and then um, in the United States, and was just really um, impressed uh, by how bold they were in their tactics and their actions. And he wrote at one point, they'll succeed ultimately in the franchise they're seeking because their actions are stronger than words. And that really influenced his thinking on strategic action. And so the philosophy that he um, helped to develop, Satyagraha, um, was very um, indigenously appropriate to the cultural context in which he was working. But he had all of these other influences and early women suffragists who gained their tactics for organizing from the abolition movement to end slavery, that was really formative in his thinking. And we often don't read about that, but but that's important. And that's why the history of women's suffrage, although ongoing and, you know, had many problems and splits and, and developed through many waves, it's important to understand the lessons we should draw from that history for our organizing today. So you tell some stories in this chapter, uh, Lucretia Mott, Mother Jones. I wonder if you could uh, tell me a couple of those. You, you describe these women as bold. Yes, and um, these stories are really telling stories because um, nonviolent scholars, scholars who want to understand how nonviolent revolutions and nonviolent movements work, they talk about this mechanism of the unexpected, right? So when someone's in, when there's a collective mindset of violence and defeating your opponent through violence, it's unexpected when someone approaches you or responds to that violence peacefully and sort of extending a hand um, uh, to, to come to a compromise or come to a peaceful solution that doesn't end in the elimination of one party or the other. Well, women do this in very unique ways because of the socialization experiences we've had, but also because sexism poses a blind spot. And so women's action is unexpected by um, male opponents. So the story you asked me about yesterday, I realize now what you were referring to. Lucretia Mott um, was really uh, very important. She and Elizabeth Cady Stanton had been shut out of public speaking events um, on the abolition of slavery. And uh, while sitting in the parlor together in the World's Anti-Slavery Fair in London, they decided to uh, start to draft up plans for Seneca Falls. So um, their exclusion from their own movement led to the women's rights movement, which later became uh, folded into the suffrage movement. But um, on these speaking tours against slavery, it was, you know, fantastic to pe- in people's minds um, and sort of um, uh, a a point of fascination that women would get up in public roles in mixed audiences. They called women and men sitting together promiscuous audiences. And the fact that they could um, speak so eloquently and so forcefully about a public issue that people assumed should be, um, you know, um, a man's job, uh, drew a lot of crowds. And eventually when it folded in and mixed with the movement for women's rights that both male and uh, female abolitionists began to support, it drew a lot of angry mobs, um, sometimes violent mobs that would even go so far as to burn the building to the ground after they've had these mm. 
uh, meetings to speak against slavery and the suppression of women. And at one meeting, the angry mob started to gather outside, and Lucretia Mott um, decided to calmly exit the building, go walk right up to the mob leader, Captain Renders, and take his arm and ask him to escort her <laughs> and the other um, organizers safe safely out of the mob. And he was taken aback by this. He he probably expected a violent argument or them to run or some other reaction. Um, and he escorted her to safely, and she saw him the next day in public and thanked him for his courtesy. So that unexpected um, element is what we consider part of what makes nonviolence work. I mean, there are many, many different factors depending on the context, but um, women do that in part because of norms of courtesy or because they're not expected to be powerful. Another story I talk about in this chapter is that of Mary Harris, who we now know as Mother Jones, and she was a formidable labor organizer. And um, in her 70s, uh, a grandmother at one point feeding these mothers, uh, um, wives of minors, uh, through this town in protest, and the militia had gathered to suppress them and to arrest them. And um, so she's at one point talking with one of the militia leaders who says, oh, Mother Jones, she must be a dangerous woman, and not realizing that it's this elderly woman he's speaking to. He doesn't see this elderly woman as this potentially powerful labor organizer um, because of ageism and sexism. And so she gets the uh, arrest strategy out of him. She learns that there's a catered breakfast the next morning for the militia, and she takes her women marchers to eat up the breakfast before the militia can (laughs) get there, and then um, through another path through town to avoid arrest. so that's the positive side of invisibility, uh, women's invisibility, and the blind spot of sexism is that it does provide some strategic and tactical opportunities. Yeah, those are great stories. Uh, of course, uh, you know, sometimes there was harm, right? Some t- the women definitely put themselves in, in harm's way through the abolition and movements and the women's suffrage movements. Certainly. Um, you know, I recommend the books of Pam McAllister, who's a historian of women's nonviolent actions, and she has um, really moving stories of the early suffragists who were um, uh, would go on hunger stri- strikes when they were in jail and they were force-fed in violent ways. Of course, the unexpected result of publicizing their treatment in jails was that. And, and Dr. Tetro talked about this um, uh, last week, that uh, it gained more support for the movement because uh, people were shocked that they were treated so violently in jail. Um, and, you know, there was the, the suffragist in the UK that threw herself before the, the horse uh, and cart and, and was killed. Um, there was violence uh, at abolition meetings as well. You know, they were used to the risk of violence, um, the early suffragists, uh, with rocks thrown and and um, all kinds of violence threatened. Um, and follow through to the civil rights movement, um, women played really foundational, really crucial roles in doing the behind-the-scenes organizing, um, as well as being out on the front lines and 
they certainly um, were not free of violence. Uh, one of the most moving testimonies I think everyone should listen to, I think it should be played in civil rights history courses in the classroom, um, is the the story of Fannie Lou Hamer talking about how violently she was beaten in jail for, um, you know, being an organizer trying to register people to vote. Mm. Um. I want, to, I want to get into this idea of uh, the erasure of, of this history, uh, women in, in nonviolence. Um, you know, that Gandhi, Gandhi was aware of it, as we said, and, and went back to it and learned from it. But it, it, t- it tends to get erased. I want to get into that. But first of all, this, this, this split, this interesting split that I think a lot of, maybe some people don't know about, women very prominent in the abolition movement, but there were restrictions, right? And... and um, uh, you know, this was going against norms. Men were supposed to be in the public sphere, right? Not women. Yes, and there were men, um, Frederick Douglass was one of them, and uh, William Lloyd Garrison, that were bold enough to support both movements at once. And um, some of these were, um, they were ultimately racist arguments, but they were framed as strategic arguments that, uh, you know, the movement needed to focus, the movement needed to choose. Um, those arguments are, are made even, you know, today. <laughs> we can see many splits in current social movements. Um, in Massachusetts, because the history of organizing against slavery was so deeply rooted, um, you do see the women unwilling to make that compromise and working very actively and supportively of black women organizers. Um, When uh, Susan B. Anthony wrote the history of the suffrage movement, and that's the first, um, you know, formal history we have of the movement, she wrote out those earlier arguments, and the Massachusetts feminists were very upset with her that that they weren't included, but um, she chose not to include um, uh, that early organizing platform, and um, some. Uh, it didn't include the other side. This is why, as a social scientist, we teach our students diversity in, um, in history and in the academy is so important because we live in the social world and we all have different perspectives. And so as many perspectives as you can include in these histories, um, the the fuller the picture you're going to get and and um, the stronger your insights into how these processes actually work. Let's take uh, our first break. Uh, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about this uh, idea of erasure uh, of, of women from this history. We're talking with Selena Gallo-Cruz, and uh, she is a professor of sociology at uh, uh, College of Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. We'll have more following this break. This is a one-minute preview of episode 13 of Debunked. Episode 13 debunks the myth, kids with substance use disorders have bad parents. I can remember when I first learned that my son was using, and he's died in front of me a couple of times. The first time, I didn't have such a good response from the hospital staff, and I was lost. I got, you need to get your son some help, but I didn't get the resources. There's a lack of critical thought to it, to sit and really process through why a person may have an addiction problem or a substance use disorder. It's more complicated than just your parent is bad. 
we need to really stop any kind of kind of notion that somehow there's something or someone to blame. It's a super complex condition that has multiple inputs in the development of this disease. Join us for the full debunking of this myth on episode 13 of Debunked, released on Wednesday, January 13th. You can find the episode on the podcast app, upr.org, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Jay Allison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on Utah Public Radio with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. That's The Moth Radio Hour, Saturday evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio. The House is expected to take up a single article of impeachment against President Trump beginning tomorrow. We'll have full coverage of the impeachment hearings here on Utah Public Radio beginning tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, my guest for the hour is uh, Selena Gallo-Cruz, Associate Professor of Sociology at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. And she has a uh, book uh, coming out uh, in the near future entitled Invisibility and Resistance, which comparatively examines how three women's peace movements arose in Argentina, former Yugoslavia, and Liberia in the face of military repression and, uh, and genocide. Uh, so before the break, we were talking about this idea of erasure um, of uh, erasure of women, uh, by and large, from uh, the history of nonviolence. What do you talk a little bit about about this, and, and how does this happen? Why does this happen? Well, I think in part um, we have a sort of a cultural love of celebrating um, heroes instead of looking at whole communities and the very complex um, contributions of many different actors to any one social movement. And so um, history sort of writes women out of the picture when they haven't been in those celebrated um, male public um, oratory roles. And and then there's often competition in the history-making. There's a process of gatekeeping, whose who's, uh, research gets funded and published and so forth. Um, if you look at Jane Addams, she was very well known um, at the time she was organizing and uh, won the Nobel Peace Prize, and um, yet we're only just starting to write her back in uh, to the, the history of um, social theory and, and social practice. So, um, you know, Elise Balding was a peace studies scholar that said women often are the underside of history. Sometimes that's intentional, and sometimes um, it's a sampling problem and who gets written into the history. And and we see um, uh, black scholars really fighting to write their history back into the history books as well. I will tell you, when my uh, daughter was in uh, sixth grade. I think she she kind of watch watches me do um, <laughs> feminist sociology, and she brought her history book home and went through the pages and counted um, the number of pages dedicated to people of color and women, and and it wasn't that many pages. <laughs> yeah, and you've said that, that this is an example why we need diversity in the academy, right? 
Definitely. We, if we, you know, sociologists are um, focused on social problems. And if we want to really understand the, the full range of causes of social problems and then to generate some, some effective potential solutions, we need as many perspectives on these issues as we can get. And, and um, so to put greater emphasis on the community of scientists and the community of scholarships and the, and, uh, the diversity of contributions to all of our fields um, is really important for those reasons. What's lost in uh, the, the erasure of women from the, from the history of nonviolence? What, uh, what do we lose? Well, we, we lose a lot. Women have been um, great strategic contributors um, and tactical contributors to the history of nonviolence. Um, if you look at the cases that I have studied in my book, um, you know, women did the work that men that were fighting de- did not deem important, and it proved to be vital to the peace-building process after war. Um, if you look at the U.S. civil rights movement, um, I tell the story of Diane Nash, for example, who didn't want a leadership role in the Nashville sit-ins, but she was the only one to show up consistently, and then she grew to be an excellent leader, and she was able to intervene in ways that the men were um, failing at uh, bringing the, the sit-in strike um, to a successful resolution. It's because of Diane Nash's intervention with the mayor that um, we saw the end of segregation in the lunch counters in Nashville, and that sparked a national movement of, you know, nearly 400 sit-in strikes inspired by this one movement in the country that year alone. So um, women are, you know, roughly more than half the population. If we want the full human picture of any movement, we have to include women's experiences. In nonviolence, um, women were able to take that theory of uh, peaceful conflict resolution and um, demobilizing violent antagonists and say, well, what about sexual assault and sexual harassment? And what about our the ways that we're organizing these protest marches and rallies and, and small civic organizations? And they really unraveled um, the power dynamics of even the relationships among protesters. If democracy is the goal of any movement, then the process by which you arrive at that democracy is really important because it provides the template for the, the outcome of that movement. And so um, acknowledging all of the important contributions of any social movement is, is going to be vital to its outcome. If you just joined us, we're talking with Selena Gao-Cruz, Associate Professor of Sociology at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, so, Professor Gao-Cruz, uh, I wanted to make a turn to talking about some of the themes in your forthcoming book, which is uh, Invisibility and Resistance. And you examine how three women's peace movements rose in three countries in the face of military repression and genocide, Argentina, former Yugoslavia, and Liberia. Um, so perhaps we can start with, with, with Argentina. I think some people are familiar with, you know, the aftermath of the dirty war, the junta, um, just some horrible things, kidnap people and push them out of airplanes. Um, so th- th- this was what, late seventies, early eighties, 
this uh, women's movement began? Yes. Um, and they first gathered in 77, 78, and 79. They were really building up their movement. Um, and they gathered because um, the disappearances were ongoing um, in great numbers at that point. Um, and um, they were not getting answers um, as to the whereabouts of their children. And at first, um, there were several groups of lawyers and uh, professors and journalists trying to to lobby the state through formal political petitions and so forth. And these women were largely housewives. The early group was largely a, a group of housewives. They simply wanted to know um, that their kids were safe, and they wanted to know any information they could about where um, their kids had been taken. And they did not consider themselves um, policy advocates or political organizers or, or even very political, many of them. Uh, they were working class, some of them very religious, and so they organized as mothers to do something about their shared experience of, of loss and worry. Um, and started to petition. They they petitioned the church a lot at first. Um, they came to a sort of grave realization that uh, the church was split on this issue, but the, the people they were petitioning were not ultimately going to help them. Um, and their movement grew, and they were bold enough to start um, meeting and marching in the plaza, in front of the governor's palace when no one else could, because, again, the disappearances and the repression was ongoing. And it wasn't just that they were women. Um, there were, you know, a third of the disappeared were women, but they were targeted as young political activists um, uh, or as suspected subversives. Whether or not that was true, that's how they were targeted. But the military police at this point really, they jeered at the women, they laughed at them, they made fun of them, um, they would taunt them when uh, the mothers would go and meet with the police, and as a result, they left them alone. And um, the women started to, to gain a little bit more um, attention from the military junta when the foreign journalists came in for the World Cup meeting and went straight to the women. Um, and little did the police realize at that point that many people were going to the mothers and reporting more and more disappeared. They saw them as a trusted ally, um, bold enough to be out front and, um, and uh, to be arguing against uh, what was happening and the, the suppression of information about what was happening. They then organized to travel outside of the country and gained the support of women's groups in other countries, of other heads of state, of NGOs and so forth, who donated money to them uh, to start a formal organization for advocacy in Argentina and, and immediately considered them human rights leaders. And this really... Um, surprised the military regime. These housewives, uh, there, there are, you know, records of them saying to the journalists, journalists, why are you talking to these crazy women? They, you, before they were called the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo, they were called Las Locas, the crazy women, because <laughs> that's how they thought of them. Oh, crazy mothers and grandmothers. Um, and, and that disrupted them, right? That's how nonviolence sometimes works through the unexpected. And they did not expect these women to be 
powerful storehouses of knowledge of the disappearances. And yet they were, and, and they were really respected in international circles. Yeah, you, you, uh, you've called this a blind spot, right? Which is, uh, I guess, unexpected power these women had. The, 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 the military dictatorship did not see them as a, as a threat, at least initially. That's right. And, and generally speaking, that's one good argument against sexism. It's a blind spot for the contributions made by women to society. Um, it's one of the many weaknesses of a patriarchy. Um, so uh, there are very different perceptions, I think, uh, domestically versus abroad. As you mentioned, um, these women were hailed as, as human rights, uh, you know, heroes, heroines uh, abroad. And, and therefore, you know, power to, to focus at least uh, foreign opinion on Argentina. They, yes, they were. And, um, you know, they split into two groups after the war, one that became more radicalized and associated itself with other leftist movements throughout Latin America, and one that focused on reuniting kidnapped children with their genetic families. Um but, uh, and when I say the church was split, they were taken with Adolfo Pérez Esquivel when he won the Nobel Peace Prize, and he shared some of that prize money with them, and, and he also wanted to put them out on the international stage as these laudable, um, he called them, he, he countered the, the name Las Locas with um, the women of courage, the, um, and so he called them the courageous ones. And um, this was very helpful. This um, sort of gave them some legitimacy in international circles. But like I said, immediately other women's groups saw them as allies and took up their cause. And that is the benefit of um, the international women's movement, started by those early suffragists in many ways, um, is that it does provide a space where women who are disrespected and disregarded and ignored and laughed at in their home countries can turn to for resources and support and help. And you saw this in each of the movements. In fact, um, the Madres from Argentina eventually went and shared their experiences um, with the women in Yugoslavia, and the women in Liberia turned to the women in Yugoslavia for training and for support when they were fighting the civil war in their country. Interesting. Uh, so learning from each other, right? Um, you mentioned earlier yeah. that an important factor here is that these women's movements um, in these various countries, um, you know, had, had varying levels of effect on on uh, you know, toppling these regimes, but definitely had an effect on directing how uh, w- what the priorities were, uh, I guess, after in the aftermath, right? Yes, because again, the women had insights that were invaluable to to understanding the level of disruption um, and damage to the country's social systems and political and economic systems at the very local level. Um, uh, you know, the youth-led movement to topple Milosevic was really focused on transferring power, many of them were also violent nationalists with ethnic uh, hatred towards other groups. And they, they were not necessarily, it was non-violent, 
um, as a street protest, but they were not necessarily nonviolent in their approach to social transformation as the women in black um, working out of Belgrade and, and building relationships with civil society groups throughout the former Yugoslav um, uh, region were committed to nonviolence. And so they had access to um, the women whose lives had been torn apart because of the genocide, um, because of the rape camps that were set up, um, because of um, economic and political tensions. And they were able to uh, direct international support for peacemaking into civil society where um, money and attention and resources were were badly needed. The same can be said in Liberia, that the women were among the key organizers of these peace and reconciliation huts. The women led the phenomenal, historically phenomenal voter registration drive after the civil war in Liberia that brought the first female president um, to power, in, uh, Sir um, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, who later took a Nobel Prize um, that she shared with one of the organizers of the peace movement. Um, and so women have played valuable, formative, essential roles, not just in resisting violence, but in their knowledge of what's really happening beyond the conflict uh, between male leaders, what's really happening to people on the ground. Um, and I would, I would point listeners to Cynthia Onlow's work on thinking about international conflicts from the perspective of women. Um, this, is, this is a really important perspective if we want to understand how to build peace and how to build reconciliation. Um, we see climate organizers also um, having this realization that we have to understand how these problems are affecting women and empower women um, to lead these changes. One, uh, I just came across this tangentially hope I'm not making this up, but um, so I think it was in Liberia. One of the organizers said, we can't eat peace. Yes, that was an organizer that I interviewed. Ah, um, okay. And she had a, a, yes, a really important role um, in the women's peace movement and thereafter and has gone on to be an international leader in peace and reconciliation training. Um, and she wasn't speaking against what she was um, challenging was the idea of peace as being simply an end to the power held by a violent um, perpetrator, in this case, Charles Taylor. And so she told me how, you know, we sat there, um, women who had given their lives um, to put an end to this horrible violence in our country, and we watched millions of dollars pour into these trials. Um, to, to bring justice to the perpetrators of war, and we want them brought to justice, but we also watched our people starving because the country had been torn apart, and our economies and our um, farming and all of our institutions had been destroyed. And so um, that money, we feel, could have been used in other ways. And again, that's why it's so important to... Um, be broad in the perspective we bring to peace building and um, and to repairing uh, countries damaged by war to, to make sure 
that our approaches are effectively supporting the people that most need the help. Yeah, a very concrete example of, of perspectives that it, had they not been at the table, uh, you know, maybe things go differently or but that are needed, right? Do you do you think we talked about erasure, uh, you know, of women, um, at least from the nonviolent uh, history of nonviolence? You know, you've talked about here the importance of uh, women being full participants in these movements. Uh, do you do you think that's the case these days? Do you think there's still problems with that? Do you think there's progress? Well, I think we've seen a heightening of public displays of very bold sexism in our country, um, but we also see women being acknowledged in new ways um, as well. Um, attention and respect given to the women leaders of Black Lives Matter, and certainly Me Too, and the largest march, I think, on history was the Women's March in response to um, uh, Trump's uh, very open displays of, of sexism. So um, I do think uh, women, and, and we have the long suffrage movement to thank and the civil rights movement to thank uh, for women running for office and trying to take on some of these social ills in very powerful and respected ways. Um, but uh, we're also in a, a time of polarization, and, and so I would say we see many many gains and many improvements in women's visibility and the respect that comes with that visibility. And we also see some um, pretty impressive displays of backlash and sexism in response. Well, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to uh, move the conversation uh, to civics. And uh, my guest is Selena Gayo-Cruz, Associate Professor of Sociology at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, Professor Guy Cruz is active in a number of local civil society efforts in her hometown of Worcester, Massachusetts, and directs a community organizer-led civics education program for public schools. I want to get into talking about that following this break. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Cache Valley ENT and the Allergy Clinic. Introducing Dr. Zach Robinette, specializing in cochlear implants and surgical alternatives to CPAP for sleep apnea. Locations in Logan and Providence. Information at cachevalleyent.com. Hello, this is Angie Clayson, a benefits specialist with the USU Human Resource Office with a project resilience tip. We are social beings, and we are not meant to live in isolation. Having a group or community that we identify with and that gives us a sense of belonging and support is important to our mental health. However, forming connections and relationships with people who have similar interests and hobbies is not as easy as it once was when we were kids on a playground. As part of Aggies Thrive, the new mental health initiative for USU faculty and staff, we'd like to introduce you to Meetup a platform that can help you find or create those important connections in your community. We have created the Aggies Thrive Group on Meetup to provide USU employees and community members an opportunity to build social connections. Whether you have lived in Utah for decades or this is your first time, there are limitless activities at our doorstep, from hiking, skiing or cycling to gardening, book clubs or parent groups, there is an activity for you. For more information, go to the USU HR website or upr.org. This tip is brought to you by UPR's Project Resilience. 
To learn more about the project and explore more resiliency tips, visit upr.org. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in October. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We have about uh, 10 minutes left in this conversation. My guest is Selena Gallo-Cruz, Associate Professor of Sociology at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. As I mentioned before the break, Professor Gallo-Cruz um, directs a community organizer-led civics education program for public schools. I want to talk a bit about this and then uh, talk about you know current events. Uh, so uh, how did the, the, tell me about the civics education program. So um, in November of 2018, Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker signed in uh, a new law to promote and develop civics curriculum in our public schools. And this is in part a response to low voter registration rates and turnout um, in national elections, as well as um, more so in local elections, and also to facilitate respectful um civic dialogue in the classroom. And so eighth graders uh, will have a civic course and they and uh, 11th graders will as well and um, will be accompanied by a student-led um, civics project. Now, as a sociologist, the question is raised, well, what kinds of um, ideas and best practices uh, of citizenship are they going to learn? And so um, what my students and I have done this summer and um, are continuing to investigate um, is the substance of that civics education in the textbooks used in public school classrooms. And um, we're looking at uh, different ideas and definitions of citizenship, the kinds of examples that are given, and what's missing from those texts, what sociologists and education scholars call the hidden curriculum. The hidden curriculum, uh, so that's the perspective, I guess, of of the, of the textbook? Um, no, it's a mm. sociological concept of um, the implicit messages that students learn. Oh. Um, for example, the, the, when I mentioned my daughter coding her history textbook, right, um, that, and to find out that the majority of the history she was learning was about white men, um, that's a hidden curriculum, right? It's telling you who's important in society, who should be credited with developing these institutions, and implicitly we're, not, we're, we're lacking um, the value for other actors and other contributions. Hmm. So we want to look at, okay, what, what are students learning about how to be a citizen in the U.S.? Um, what's, the, what's the reaction from, from students? And you know, talking about your students, I guess, the college students who are, who are kind of doing this, this work, um, are, are, they, are they surprised? Are they learning things, that they, new perspectives uh, about this hidden curriculum and, and other potential problems? Yes, I had a, a phenomenal um, research team this summer um, who worked on the project, and they were surprised. Uh, one was really interested in history, and so he dug into um, the development of 
citizenship education in the U.S. over time and sort of the paradigmatic shifts um, that lead us to teach or not teach citizenship and to teach it in different ways. And another one was really interested in practice and application, and she interviewed some of her former high school teachers and said, you know, I never really looked at my textbooks this way before. And when you take the big picture, it's, um, it reveals uh, sort of a, a structure of education that you don't really think about when you're just reading through the text as a student. And um, part of the aim of the project is to give some insight to teachers so that um, you know, for example, teachers in my county reported that they chose the textbook they chose because the accompanying web bank of tests and so forth was really user-friendly and appealing. Um, but are they thinking about, well, what is what are the messages this text um, uh, is communicating to the students, and what are they learning and what are they not going to learn when we talk about citizenship from these particular perspectives. And so we want to give them that comparative perspective and say, look, we looked at a number of texts really in depth, and we looked at a website that is um, quite popular and used in many classrooms around the U.S., and here's what it's promoting and, and here's what it's leaving out. We just have about three minutes left, and I want to use those minutes talking, you know, bringing forward to today, and we're in a very interesting time. I guess interesting is the is a positive way to describe it, right? Troubling. Um, when we talked yesterday, uh, I thought you put it very well. You said we're talking about voting rights, voter suppression, uh, worries about this. Uh, you said we're still in a suffrage movement. We're, we're still in a struggle for suffrage. We definitely are, and I would encourage listeners that haven't uh, made the first and second talks of this conference to listen to the recording online through December, because Dr. Carol Anderson and Dr. Lisa Tetro spoke about um, the rights that we still don't have uh, to protect voter access to registration. And I would encourage listeners to do your own research on some of the debates about how to empower um, people to gain access to the right to vote. Um, there are conversations about universal registration. Should we have voting holidays, um, rotating voting holidays? Um, should we reform the Electoral College? Should we have ranked choice voting? Many states do, but not all. Um, and really to think about voting as the minimum. Um, citizenship happens throughout the, the year and the, the political life cycle, not just when we show up to the ballot box. And so, so much of what goes into who is able to show up to the ballot box and how those votes are counted happens in the in-between areas, those invisible areas of the process. And so as citizens that want to um, protect our right to vote and protect the, the foundation of our democracy is to just have a voice. We need to think about what's happening in between the elections and how we can make a positive impact on that process. Uh, just a minute left. Um, you do. You told me you do something very interesting. You bring grassroots organizers into the classroom. I guess into the classroom is a, you know in quotes right now, but but I guess still uh, virtually these days. Uh, why do you do that? And what 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 effects does it have on the students? 
Well, I'm trying to use a technique I use in the college classroom, which is to bring the field into the classroom. And so instead of memorizing the history of the Constitution and the the structure of our government, students do need to do that. They need to have that basic knowledge. But to learn how to practice citizenship, I want them to meet people in their community who are lifelong engaged citizens, to talk about what makes them passionate about the issues that they work on, to talk about how our local government plays a role in how we experience problems here in our community that are that are national problems, but they have a um, uh, way of showing up in our community in a very particular way, and so that they can learn engaged citizenship um, through practice and not just memorizing. Well, we've reached the the end of our time. Uh, our guest has been Selena Gayo Cruz, associate professor of sociology at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, Selena Gao-Cruz, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And uh, thanks to our listeners for listening to Access Utah. Join us here on Utah Public Radio throughout the week for Utah State University Extension's Ask an Expert, featuring timely information from raising your own backyard chickens to keeping our waterways clean and tips promoting mental wellness at work. If you've missed the latest segment for the week, you can find all the Ask an Expert features on our website, upr.org, and on our UPR app. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org.